Now, last week, you may have wondered why I stopped short of finishing chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel. I concluded with verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. I stopped there. I didn't go on to verse 28, which reads, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, verse 27 is obviously talking about the second coming. When, accompanied by angels, Jesus will return to recompense every man according to his needs. Well, if we link verse 28 with verse 27, as was done when the verse and chapter divisions were added to the text of Matthew, it sounds as if Jesus is saying that some of those standing there would not see death until the second coming. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. Jesus hasn't returned. And no one who was standing there 2,000 years ago is still alive. So was Jesus mistaken? As some theologically liberal scholars might suggest? Or was Jesus talking about something other than the second coming in verse 28? Well, in Matthew 24:36, when speaking about his coming with the angels to gather the elect, Jesus did say, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So Jesus clearly stated that he did not know exactly when he was going to return. But to suggest that he would say something that wasn't true about his return is going too far. In taking on flesh, the Son of God did limit himself in many ways, but he would never mislead us about the future. So let me be perfectly clear. Jesus was not wrong. He simply changed topics between verse 27 and 28. In fact, the way a parallel passage in Mark's gospel is divided bears this out. A similar statement about Jesus coming in the glory of his Father with the holy angels is the final verse of chapter 8 of Mark's gospel. And the statement that some who were standing there would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power is the first verse of chapter 9. We also need to take note of the fact that in both Matthew and Mark, Jesus says some standing there would not taste death until... They had seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, 
or the kingdom of God after it's come with power. The implication is that some of them standing there would taste death after they had seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And no one will taste death, at least not physical death, after the second coming. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul makes it clear that the second coming, the dead in Christ, will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We won't die after seeing the return of Jesus. So Jesus was obviously talking about something other than the second coming when he said some who were standing there wouldn't die until they had seen the Son of Man come into his kingdom with power. He's talking about something else. Something that would be a demonstration of his power and the coming of his kingdom. So what was it? Well, several things qualify to one degree or another as possible answers. It's obvious that the resurrection was a demonstration of Christ's power and signaled the coming of his kingdom. The day of Pentecost also qualifies, for it was then that the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles and the church was established. Some have even suggested the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and that's when the nation of Israel ceased to exist. And it became obvious that the church was now the kingdom of God on earth. In fact, it's possible that it's not just one of these things, but all of them. For indeed, some who were standing there that day did leave to see all those things come to pass. However, Jesus may have had something else in mind here. Something that only three of those standing there would be privileged to see. And Peter writes about it. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is here referring to what we call the transfiguration. When he and James and John were made eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. When they saw something that he said demonstrated the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it was something that took place shortly after Jesus spoke the words recorded in Matthew 16:28 and Mark 9:1. In both places, the next verse begins, and six days later. And six days later. It's apparent the transfiguration is therefore a fulfillment of Jesus' statement, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Indeed, the events that took place on the holy mountain demonstrated the power and the coming of the Lord. And they were without a doubt events that made Peter and James and John eyewitnesses of his glory and his majesty. For there on the mountain, his majesty was seen. Matthew 17. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Six days later. Now, Mark says some eight days later, an expression equivalent to our about a week later. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, most believe it was Mount Hermon, located near Caesarea Philippi, and Luke tells us they went there to pray. Apparently, it was evening when they arrived, and after a time of prayer, the disciples fell asleep, as they would do in Gethsemane. But Jesus kept praying. And as he was praying, his face shone like the sun. Now, Luke understates it, simply noting that the appearance of his face became different. I mean, different indeed. It shone like the sun. Matthew continues by saying that his clothing became as white as light. Mark takes it even further, saying his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now, both Matthew and Mark say he was transfigured. It's the word from which we get the word metamorphosis. He was radically changed in appearance. He metamorphed. He changed form. And his face shone like the sun. Now, we're not told the significance of the transfiguration. It's not, to, it's not explained to us why it happened, or what actually caused it. Now, some suggest that Christ's humanity had simply reached perfection, and that was the glory that had become visible. Others draw a comparison to Moses and how his face shone after being with God on Mount Sinai receiving the law. But I don't believe that's what happened to Jesus. 
I don't believe what happened to Jesus was related to his humanity. Nor was it the result of his being with God. I think it was a revelation of his divine nature. That his true nature broke through the veil of flesh and he could be seen for what he really was. Fulton Sheen agrees. And as always, he says it beautifully. He says, the glory of his divinity flashed through the threads of his earthly raiment. He goes on to note something very interesting. He says, in man, the body is a kind of cage of the soul. In Christ, the body was the temple of divinity. In the Garden of Eden, we know that man and woman were naked but not ashamed. This is because the glory of the soul before sin shone through the body and became a kind of raiment. Here, too, in the transfiguration, the divinity shone through humanity. This is probably much more natural than for Christ to be seen in any other pose, namely without that glory. It took restraint to hide the divinity was in him. The disciples saw Jesus as he really was. You know, Matthew tells us that the angel that rolled away the stone from Jesus' tomb had an appearance like lightning, and his garment was white as snow. The guards could see that the angel was a divine creation. Likewise, Peter and James and John were given a glimpse of Jesus' divine nature. They were being made eyewitnesses of his majesty. A majesty that they were not only privileged to see, but a majesty that was also affirmed by the appearance of Moses and Elijah and the presence and voice of God himself. Let's read on. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Himself alone. Again, Luke gives us a few more details. He tells us that it was while the disciples were sleeping that Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And the word for departure is interesting. It's our word exodus. Exodus. Moses 
who led God's people on the exodus from bondage in Egypt, was talking with Jesus about his exodus, one that would free mankind from the bondage of sin. Moses and Elijah were affirming what Jesus was about to do, encouraging and assuring him that indeed he did have to go to Jerusalem and be killed and be raised up on the third day as he had been trying to explain to the disciples. Two of the most revered men in the Old Testament, the great lawgiver and the great prophet, had come to help Jesus prepare for what lay ahead. And as they were about to leave, the disciples, the disciples woke up. Luke tells us when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men standing with him, what a way to wake up. <laughs> to see Jesus glowing and Moses and Elijah back on earth. Now, how they knew who they were, were not told. Perhaps they just intuitively knew who they were. And that may be an indication of how we will identify each other in glory. We'll just know it. Be that as it may, once they realized what they were seeing, Peter, as was his nature, spoke up. Lord! It's good for us to be here. I like being on the mountaintop with you and Moses and Elijah. And if you want, I'll build three tabernacles, three religious shrines. And you and Moses and Elijah can stay here rather than going on to Jerusalem. And we can stay on the mountain with you or maybe just visit and bring others with us to, to worship you here. As he was speaking, formulating his plan, a bright, luminous cloud, the Shekinah presence of God that had led the children of Israel and had inhabited the temple, overshadowed them. And a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples fell on their faces. They were scared to death. So Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. When they opened their eyes, Moses and Elijah were gone, and Jesus apparently looked normal again. Peter would later speak of God as the majestic glory who testified to the majesty of his Son. And who had made it clear that Jesus was in a league of his own. He wasn't just equal to Moses and Elijah. One of three to be enshrined on the mountain, he was uniquely the Son of God, the one to whom they were to listen. His majesty had been seen and powerfully affirmed. But they weren't to tell anyone about it until his majesty was proven. 
And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man was going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one what they had seen. The word for vision doesn't mean it was only a dream. It simply refers to what they had seen. They weren't to tell what they had seen until after the resurrection. Why? Because no one would understand it. And the disciples themselves wouldn't fully comprehend what they had seen until after the resurrection. They wouldn't even understand the resurrection until after it had happened. John tells us that it wasn't until he and Peter went to the empty tomb did they understand what Jesus had meant when he said he would rise from the dead. So when he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen, they weren't even thinking about his coming death and resurrection and how it related to what they had witnessed. They were just concerned about the fact that they couldn't tell anybody that Elijah had come to earth. They knew that Malachi had prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah ushered in the kingdom, and they were ready for the Messianic kingdom. So they, this, this, this talk about Jesus dying didn't make sense to them and didn't. Elijah's appearance on the mountain signaled the beginning of the kingdom. Well, Jesus affirmed they were right about the coming of Elijah, but they didn't understand how he would prepare the way for the Messiah any more than they understood the nature of the kingdom. In fact, Elijah had already come, and he had been treated the same way Jesus was about to be treated. He had been killed. They then understood he was talking about John the Baptist. They remembered that Jesus had identified John as being the one who fulfilled the prophecy concerning Elijah, that he had come in the spirit and power of Elijah. They were, they were beginning to understand. They were beginning to see. But they wouldn't see clearly until after the resurrection. Only then would they fully comprehend the glory and majesty of Christ. They were given a glimpse of his glory on the holy mountain, but they wouldn't understand the true power and glory of Christ, nor the nature of his kingdom, until they had become witnesses of his death and resurrection. Only then would his majesty really be proven. And Peter and James and John were indeed all privileged to see 
the coming of that kingdom with power before their death. They were witnesses of his majesty. It was affirmed to them by the voice of God, and it was proven to them by the resurrection. And because of their testimony, we too can know of his majesty. Because of his divine nature that was demonstrated in the transfiguration, we too can be changed. Our faces may not shine like the sun and our garments may not become radiant. But because of the resurrection of the Son of God, we can be forgiven. He can wash us. And he can make us whiter than snow.